Welcome to the Sales Transformation Podcast. We've got our annual Global Sales Transformation event coming up on Thursday, the 7th of October, held as we normally do at the illustrious London Stock Exchange. And in preparation for the event, I wanted to share some of the past talks to give you a flavor of what GST is all about. I'm super excited for the event and to see some faces, especially with the past 18 months we've had. This podcast episode is from a talk by Dr. Samuel West. He's a licensed psychologist with a PhD in organizational psychology who spoke about failure at our global sales transformation event in 2019 and how the idea of failure could be embraced. He was fed up with the narrative of success, tired of worshiping success and innovation in sales and decided to curate a museum based around failure. The Museum of Failure was set up some years ago and uh, it's uh, been incredibly successful since its launch. It's gone global. This was a particularly enjoyable episode and I'm sure many of you will recognize some of the companies he mentions. The key points that he alludes to is the importance of creating a space, a psychological space for safety and to embrace failure as a means of leading to success. Thank you for having me. Um, Samuel West, I'm a clinical psychologist and a PhD in uh, organizational psychology. So I started the Museum of Failure for two reasons. One was I needed to find a new way or wanted to find a new way to communicate research findings. Uh, usually research findings stays in academic journals that not many people read or in academic uh, seminars and forums. So I, needed, I wanted to find a new medium, new way to communicate that. Another reason I started the museum was because I was so fed up with this narrative of success and you guys know what I'm talking about. We're constantly force-fed this sort of being told to worship success. And it doesn't matter which, it doesn't matter if it's sales or in my sort of niche innovation. Everything we look for inspiration, we're looking for these success stories and we try to emulate it. There's a fundamental flaw here because there's not very much learning happening from these success stories compared to failures. From your own experience that every time you fail, if you give yourself some time to learn from that, you learn much more than reading a success story in a, in a magazine. I even found my wife, she subscribes to a, it's called, a, she would hate if I told you, the, it's called the Older Woman's Lifestyle Magazine. <laughs> <laughs> I was looking through it the other day, and even in this magazine about cooking and about how to get a divorce and all those things, even there, it's far away from anything that has to do with innovation or sales. It's full of success stories. Look at me. I have teenage kids that don't take drugs. Oh, I'm a successful mother. Look at me. I lost 10 kilos, so I'm successful with my body. My favorite, she says it's in every single issue of this magazine. The, story, the title of the article is, I quit my boring job at the city council and I started a sourdough bakery and I'm happy. <laughs> so, so even there, we're, it's like success. success. Anyway, I, needed, I wanted to find a way to, to counteract that. Here it is. Over 70 different innovation failures at the Museum of Failure. So we opened June 7th in Helsingborg. It's in the southernmost part of Sweden. And uh, we're closed. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.
I wish I had a good way, to, a good comeback there, but I don't. I had no idea this museum would take off the way it did. Um, and so I only had the contract for the, at the art gallery here for the summer. Uh, so we're closed and opening again in April at a very posh, nice place. Um, so yeah, the, I've really tried to get a nice sort of array of innovation failures. So it's not just technology. There's business models, there's food, there's even adult sex toys, at least one of them. Uh, so as many different sort of areas as possible. And I, and I think, I stole this quote from Leo Tolstoy. He wrote that all happy families are alike, but every unhappy family is unhappy in its own specific way. <laughs> so I stole it, and then I take full credit for my quote. And I, and I truly believe this, that there's so much uh, failure, so much more interesting. It's so much, uh, there's so much more learning uh, material there than from success. And this is, this, it's actually not a quote. I don't know where I found this or stole it from, but uh, maybe I thought of it myself. The mission of the museum is to communicate that, um, that we need to accept failure if we want progress uh, in any aspect of life. Um, we definitely, when it comes to innovation, we need to accept failure because 80, 90% of all innovation projects, they actually fail. Uh, but we need to give ourselves some time to, to discuss and reflect on our failures, our team's failures, because that's where the learning happens. So let's uh, dive into some of these. So anybody tried the Segway? It's awesome. Uh, when it came out in 2001, it was a really, it still is an amazing piece of technology. So 2001, why is the, it still exists? Uh, you can still see Segways in, in town, you know? Um, so why is, why is it at the museum? Because it illustrates the definition of failure in organizational contexts. So it's a deviation from expected or desired outcomes or results. So just to give you an idea, the, in 2001, the expectations for the Segway were sky high. They, um, I'll throw some quotes out. So all the big guys in Silicon Valley, Steve Jobs, Jeff Bezos, they threw money at it. The eccentric inventor, he was, got celebrity status. So what was supposed to happen? Well, the Segway will be the first product in history to reach one billion U.S. in sales within a year. Didn't happen. <laughs> okay. The segue will be to the car what the car was to the horse and buggy. Are, you, are we getting warmed up? <laughs> okay, my favorite. This one is awesome. <laughs> the, in the, okay, it was supposed to revolutionize the way we transport our, this is good. In the future, city infrastructure will be built around the Segway. <laughs> Okay, it's a good idea, it's a cool thing, it's cool technology, the expectations were way out of sync, and hence it was, a, it was is a commercial uh, failure. History lesson here, the Vasa ship in Stockholm. When I started the museum, I applied for funding from the Swedish sort of state innovation fund, and uh, they're a very serious non, sort of, they, it's a bureaucratic government authority. And I said, give me some money for my museum. This will be the first museum of failure in the world, which it is. And in there, uh, a letter back saying, okay, you got the money. However, we would wish to point out that Stockholm already has a museum of failure. It's called the Vasa Ship Museum. What happened to the Vasa Ship? Almost 400 years ago, the king of Sweden 
at the time, Sweden was the, like a powerful kingdom, unlike today. And the king, they wanted to construct the most heavily armed, awesome warship at the time. And the innovation part was that the, the Vasa had two decks or two stories of artillery and cannons. So that's cool. And it was very well uh, decorated. The problem was, and the engineers knew this, that the, because it was so top heavy, it was unstable. All right. Are you with me so far? The engineers, they'd done the testing, but the CEO, the king, he said, we got we to gotta launch anyway because we have a war to fight in Poland. And the marketing director, the admiral, he, said, he also said, we have to launch anyway. Put some extra ballast in there. We already got the party planned. We've ordered the food trucks. We gotta have this launch. <laughs> sure enough, they launched it. It sailed about uh, half a kilometer out into the harbor. A little gust of wind came and the boat sank. <laughs> Huge embarrassment. And now it's at a museum in Stockholm. So the reason I thought this story is because, interestingly enough, we don't learn from our mistakes. So what happened here is they launched immature technology. They knew it didn't work, but they launched it anyway. Doesn't make doesn't make any sense. But we don't learn. Okay. <laughs> so the Apple Newton from '93 was the same problem as the Vasa ship. The killer feature of the uh, Apple Newton was that it didn't have a keyboard. You just wrote with your handwriting. It had handwriting recognition. So. Same problem there as the Vasa. They spent a lot of money on this app at the time, and the engineers said it doesn't quite work. But the CEO and the marketing department, they pushed ahead, they said, we'll launch it anyway, we'll update the, the software later. <coughs> Sounds good, huh? Yeah, because the competition was launching similar products, and you had good reasons to do this. Anyway, the Newton comes out, it's this really cool, sexy device that doesn't work. Um, so the Newton became synonymous, the word Newton became synonymous with expensive technology that doesn't work. The Simpsons made fun of it, it was you know, mocked in, in a comic series. It was a really bad decision on Apple's part. This is one of my favorite, I'll say that about all because I like them all. <laughs> A plastic bike from Sweden in 1982. At the time, plastic was really exciting, and they, it was supposed to revolutionize Swedish bicycle manufacturing industry. It was supposed to be cheaper than bikes because it was plastic. It turned out, because of production costs, to be double the price. Uh, it, was, it doesn't rust, so it was called the everlasting machine. It didn't rust, but the handlebars and the saddle broke. But the most damning feature of the uh, Itera bicycle was the fact that it wobbled as you biked. <laughs> so somebody, I've tried it, it does wobble. Somebody described it as, it looks like a crocodile, but it moves like an anaconda. <laughs> Nokia N-Gage, another example of, or an example of, a, of great technology, a need. At the time, around the turn of the century, people, young people had a gaming so a Game Boy device in one pocket and a, and a phone in the other. So Nokia, which were at the top of their game then, they combined this to one device. The problem here was design and implementation. It was a great idea and good technology. They, to change a game on this gaming device, you had to take apart the entire thing. You had to disassemble, take out the battery. It was a big pain in the ass to change a game on your gaming device. Problem one, problem two, there weren't any games. There was only two games that were any good. <laughs> so Nokia hadn't worked strategically with third-party uh, developers. 
And then there was funny sort of design flaws. <laughs> I don't think they're that huge, but they're funny. So a regular phone, you hold it, the end gauge, you, you hold it on its side. So people mockingly look at the shape of it as well. They called it the taco phone because you hold it like a taco. <laughs> it didn't help. Yeah, some other example, Google Glass, an example of technology that was launched also promising way too much, didn't deliver. There was no useful applications for it. And the most notable sort of failure on Google's part is that there were integrity issues. Privacy issues where this, the, the glass had inbuilt camera and microphone and Wi-Fi connection. And people don't like to be recorded you know, without their consent. So the, the cafes outside of San Francisco had signs in 2013. No dogs and then no glass holes. Because that's what they were called, people who use Google Glass. Energy drink, Coca-Cola. Uh, they noticed that premium coffee was gaining in sales, and they also noticed that energy drinks were more and more popular. So they said, ah, oh, we're going to join this, and launched an energy drink called Coca-Cola. I don't know how to say this. Black? Black? It's basically, it was aimed at the ultra-sophisticated professional 30-year-old. So the suave 30-year-old. What it was, imagine coffee mixed with Diet Coke. The only thing Coca-Cola actually admits to is that perhaps the taste was not for everyone. <laughs> that's, that's all I could find. So this is, a, this is one of the more, sort of, I get often asked, what's, what's your favorite uh, product at the museum? And I like, I, this is probably one of my favorite, because it's just, there's such a good story here. It's a tragic story, a cautionary tale uh, of... Kodak that had everything. They had the technology, they had, they had plenty of money, they had the know-how, the skills, they had everything. And in the 1970s, they invented the digital camera. That's a long time ago. Top management saw the prototype and said to the engineer, that's cute, let's not tell anybody about it. Bad decision. Anyway, so fast forward to the 90s, they'd caught up uh, with competition, and they were actually pioneers. They were extremely successful with digital cameras. This is the first one for consumers. And so what happened to Kodak? They, they also started an early version of Instagram, sort of a photo image sharing service in 2001. But then the whole issue was that they were so stubborn. They, their business model was making money when people printed or developed photos. So their cameras, their image sharing service, everything Kodak did was aimed at getting people to print more photos in every, every possible way. The problem, of course, is that as ca cameras became cheaper and more readily available, we don't print our image, we don't print our photos anymore. So 2012, Kodak goes bankrupt. The same month, ironically, that Instagram was sold to Facebook for $1 billion. So I get like it's it's a it was a video in the New York Times of the CEO in charge of dismantling Kodak. It was actually I don't know why it's weirdly touching to see a man. I've worked all my life at Kodak and now I'm demolishing buildings and selling off patents because they were could not change and adapt their business model. I thought about that with the postcard example. If your if your business is printing stuff, maybe. You should change your business model. Maybe they should go into tourist experience or immersion of experiences at the destination rather than printing shit. Yeah? <laughs> that was my two cents worth. <laughs> so, oh, that's a dildo. We'll skip it.
No, I'm kidding. We'll take it. <laughs> so this is a good one. It's uh, the world's first gender-neutral sex toy. So <laughs> I don't ask how I found it. <laughs> So it's the box set, it's for her, it's for him. It's for her and him, for him and her. And then there's, you can bend it in any shape possible. So it's really universal. And apparently, the, it, there was, I found information on one blogger that says, it aimed to satisfy everyone and satisfied no one. <laughs> Big failure. Uh, I'm still waiting for my accountant to say, so on your company car, you bought a dildo and some lube? Like, what? <laughs> it's for the museum. It's for the museum. Stupid device, a Twitter peak, unnecessary device. It only has one function, the tweet. But by that time, everyone already had iPhones with the Twitter app, so it was completely unnecessary. Somebody wrote, the Twitter peak is so dumb that it makes my brain hurt. <laughs> Here's Big For Her. So Big For Her is wonderful. <laughs> it, so you women here, I'm surprised you get to go to conferences and do business because you're, you, you can't write with regular pens. Uh, <laughs> yeah, those are absolutely worthless. Just throw it away. <laughs> yeah. This is what Big had in mind, at least, uh, when they launched the uh, Big Pen For Her in 2011. Now note, this is not 1811, it's 2011. So the big pen is specifically designed for the uh, 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 women's ha hands, and it comes, of course, in colors that women appreciate, and glitter as well. <laughs> and because women make twice as much as men do, they cost twice as much as regular pens. So a question here is problems of diversity. Are there any women on the innovation team or sales team at BIC? Is there anyone there who dares say, hey guys, this is one of those ideas that should stay in the, on the post-it note in the brainstorming room. It should, you, should, you should never have taken this to market. This is Ikea's uh, ill-fated attempt at inflatable furniture uh, so in the 80s and then again in the 90s. So there are some advantages, it's cheap. And this one, and then you can lift it when you vacuum. There was, however, one major issue. I can't keep a straight face when I say this. If you had two windows open in your apartment, <laughs> <laughs> then your furniture moves around. <laughs> I'm gonna get this for the museum before I open. <laughs> Last one. This one is amazing. So Procter and Gamble. Huge consumer products and food company. They, they solved the problem. Calorie-free fat. That's like the ultimate holy grail. So there was only one small side effect. It became known, Lestra, this calorie-free fat substitute, became known as, or the warning label said, may cause anal leakage. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yummy. <laughs> and I, for some reason, this, the can that I have at the museum has the best before date of 2016. So it, it's still made in Mexico, apparently. So Anyway, all these examples. So is it embarrassing for these companies to be in the Museum of Failure? Perhaps. But I think that it's even more embarrassing for the companies who are not represented at the Museum of Failure because they're not being innovative enough. So a hallmark of an innovative company 
is that they do have, they do make plenty of mistakes and they have plenty of failures. The interesting thing is how embarrassed, like why failure is such an issue, why it's so sensitive. It's embarrassing, it's an emotionally, emotional discomfort. We, I can't help but be a little bit psychologist uh, d thinking about all of this, that we internalize failure and how our response to failure quite early in life. I remember my daughter, she was about, I don't know, three or four. I came home from work and the couch had all the pillows like on one end of the couch. And, um, and I, it's not supposed to be like that. And I knew something was wrong, obviously. <laughs> so I removed the pillows and there's like a piece of chocolate or something. <laughs> and of course I knew she had done it. So what did she do as a three, four year old there? We don't have any rules at home. I haven't told her it's, you can't eat candy in, in, in the couch, yeah. But uh, she knew she did something wrong. There was a mistake, there's a failure, and she tried to cover it up and hide it. And then when I called her out on it, she blamed her little brother who couldn't even walk. And that's, that's a three, four-year-old. We do the same things today as super professionals in our nice jobs. We might glorify failure with Silicon Valley, fail forward, or fail faster, fail early, fail cheaply. All these sort of slogans, they're good. There's nothing wrong with them, but oftentimes they're just, sort of, we don't really walk the talk. Uh, we don't live the way we preach. And like HBR says, we're hypocrites about it. In most organizations, there's still a lot of sort of avoidance. Both avoidance of talking about failure, admitting failure, I talked earlier about vulnerability. Part of that is also admitting that you are fallible. And there's not much of that going on in, in today's organizations. And despite many companies uh, that claim to be very innovative, they still have an organizational culture that penalizes and somehow punishes when people take meaningful risks and then it fails. It's very apparent in the innovation world. I'm not too familiar with sales, but I am assuming that there's a lot of parallels there as well. There's one exception to the rule that organizations are really bad at learning from failure, and that's the airline industry. I'm gonna catch a plane in a two, hour, three, two hours at Gatwick, so this is not fun to talk about. But <laughs> the, the airline industry, air aviation industry is, is awesome at learning from failure and they can actually be a role model for all of us. What they do when an airplane crashes or something goes wrong, they don't just accept the first level of explanations. So this is an example from San Francisco, brand new airplane, two experienced pilots, beautiful day, everything's perfect, airplane lands, it crashes, rolls over, I mean it catches fire, it's a horrific accident. It's only two, three years ago. What happened? The first explanation is that the autopilot didn't warn that the plane was landing too slowly. Okay, most of your companies, <laughs> most of the ones I've worked with, we said, okay, fine, we've got a solution, let's carry on. We have the explanation, we know what went wrong, that's the end of it, it's uncomfortable, but let's move on to the next project. They don't, so they take it one step further. Why, why was this an issue? The co-pilot that was landing the plane knew there was something wrong. He felt that there was something wrong with the landing. But he sat, what is it, 50 centimeters from the captain who had super experience on this plane. He didn't dare ask the captain. He didn't dare ask a stupid question or uh, risk prestige or be vulnerable right there in that situation. Had he done that, the plane wouldn't have crashed. So the second level of analysis 
in this aircraft crash is that the, there's a very unhealthy cockpit culture. There's no, no safety in that cockpit. You're not allowed to be to ask questions. You're not allowed to be vulnerable. You're not allowed to, to question authority. And then the third order of analysis is that the whole airline, Korean airline that, that crashed, they have the entire the co corporate culture itself is one of low levels of psychological safety. So the psychological safety is key to learning from failure because psychological safety is a perception. It's on a team level. So this is not an organizational level, an individual level. So it's a, it's a sense of safety within a group, a perception that when you take a risk, an interpersonal risk, you say something, you ask a question, you, you know, lower your prestige or your guard, you show signs of vulnerability or, or, or admit your own fallibility. When you do that, there's a sense of safety within that group that you won't be punished for it. Now, it makes a lot of sense. The, the whole concept of psychological safety comes from healthcare teams about 20 years ago, that the healthcare teams that were high performing had much greater error reports. They made a lot more errors than the low performing teams. Go figure, it wasn't. The low performing teams were making much more mistakes, but they just weren't talking about them or reporting them. So 20 years later, Google did a fantastic job, 160 teams. And the question was, you know, as I skipped, well, what's the, what characterizes a high-performing, innovative team? And they found that it was, psychological safety was more important than team composition. You know, do you have a rational person, a creative person, etc.? It was more important than experience. It was more important than leadership. They even looked at weird factors such as, do, do people enjoy taking a, enjoying a beer after work? <laughs> Do they enjoy each other's company after work? That didn't matter whatsoever. So this sense of safety within a team to be able to collab, genuinely collaborate by asking these questions and being willing to admit your mistakes is what defines psychological safety. So point number one, how can we generate, how can we get teams to um, increase their psychological safety? It's all about you as a team leader. It's all about the most senior person in the room being a role model. So the project manager, um, instead of framing tasks as uh, execution tasks, to frame it as a learning task, I, I think about this postcard example again. If somebody came in and said, okay, now we, gotta, we have to make more money selling postcards, printing more stuff, then that's an execution problem. Then you're quite limited. If you would go in and ask a team, a diverse team of experts there or backgrounds as a learning problem, then you would, everyone, you would have to listen to everyone in that team and get a deeper understanding of what's going on. Much more fruitful um, um, approach than seeing things as just execute. That, number two, I've already been there, acknowledge your own fallibility. If you're not willing to do it, there's no one else. No one else in the room is gonna do it if you don't do it. Um, it's not about glorifying failure. Even if I have a museum of failure, I don't glorify it. I just think that it deserves much more attention than it gets. And we have to be willing to talk about it if we want to learn from it. Ask a lot of questions. These are my, my, my two points that I wanted to add to the Harvard professor's points. To reinforce behaviors. When you see someone in your team, if you notice someone demonstrating behaviors that sort of 
are aligned with psychological safety. If somebody is admitting to a mistake and don't roll your eyes, don't laugh at it, take it seriously, be supportive of it, reinforce that behavior. If someone is showing a bit of vulnerability, I know maybe much sales has a sort of a macho reputation. Uh, vulnerability might not be very high on the list there, but if you, if you want high psychological safety, try, notice that if someone is actually making an attempt, uh, be supportive of that and re reinforce that. And then my research on, on, on playful, experimental, and explorative work environments. Uh, it's, the evidence is quite clear that teams that have fun together, they have a buffer when things get tough. And if you've had a, a lot of fun, interesting, sort of engaging experiences together that often comes in playful contexts, then you have that buffer when, th when you need it. And that, I'm convinced that also helps psychological safety. Can I just say a, a huge thank you for coming to join us in that you, case? You thought I might have not have shown up, then you could have said that it was yeah, a failure. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We had it all sorted. Yeah, we even organized a train strike. For oh, you, excellent. Almost, thank you. It didn't thank quite you. come off. Uh, they called it off at the last moment. Uh, but thank you. Can we give a round of applause? Thank you. Yeah. <laughs>